1: In the 1950s and 60s, bartender Jerry Thomas traveled the U.S., and he worked a little bit in Chicago. He's most famous for his saloons in Manhattan, but he did make the grand tour, and there was a reason he stopped in Chicago to work for a spell. The city had some great saloons. What can I get for you guys? Uh, we'll grab a couple of blue Blazes. You got it. Two blue Blazes, coming right up. But looming on the horizon was a growing anti-alcohol movement. Even in his 1862 edition of The Bartender's Guide, Jerry Thomas included a chapter on temperance drinks with recipes for lemonade. When the National Prohibition Act became legislation, on January 17th, 1920, Al Capone celebrated his 21st birthday. He had just relocated from New York to Chicago, and by the time he was 26, he was in charge of one of the more far-reaching criminal gangs in Chicago's history. When he was in Chicago, prohibition ravaged the country. It shut down most of the U.S. winery infrastructure, and it led a drinking public to seek other forms of social infrastructure. Legging became popular, and Chicago was a choice area. Alcohol could come in from Canada over the Great Lakes, and then be distributed to the country on trains that came through the city. Chicago's positioning became a key distribution area, and the lack of prohibition enforcement in the area made it a reasonable home base for smugglers. The political climate and strategic location of Chicago also made it a great place for alcoholic beverages to continue flowing. Bars like the Green Mill have escape tunnels under the bar, and creative speakeasies popped up in unique locations. At the modern-day John Barleycorn, the bar changed to a laundromat, but still smuggled in barrels under piles of laundry during Prohibition. But the speakeasies of Prohibition weren't just establishments where people could drink alcohol in secret. Their unique approach to social structures helped change societal norms and break down barriers between classes and sexes. Prohibition helped a little with women's liberation. A woman should have entered a bar from the side entrance. But most picole speakeasies had one point of entrance. Men and women could enter together. And because of the secret nature of the venue, it wasn't considered unsavory for a woman to enter in the front door. Now, before Prohibition, a few upscale dining establishments and hotels were venues where chaperoned women and men could socialize together. But with the speakeasy, women and men of all classes could interact with one another. This new social dynamic between men and women in part helped pave the way for women's liberation. Speakeasies fostered cultural change in the arts as well. With motion pictures on their eyes and vaudeville in decline, The secret bars became places where vaudeville performers could perform, thus keeping this unique facet of American entertainment from extinction. Music, jazz, found homes in many of these venues. And several classic American dance forms that spread throughout the country with traveling big bands had their genesis in speakeasies. You'll notice that many of the dances popular during Prohibition were dances that could be performed on tiny, crowded dance floors. But after Prohibition, dances that involved a healthy use of dance floor space, like Swing, became more popular. Chicago's more lenient enforcement of Prohibition ensured a vibrant speakeasy culture that greatly contributed to major shifts in U.S. society. It also fostered a 1930s shift away from wine appreciation and toward cocktail appreciation That would take decades to reestablish. And with people like Al Capone in the national spotlight, all eyes were on Chicago during this time of great change.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in Wine Country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, -S 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 dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Conrad Reddick, Service Manager, Beverage Director at Alinea Restaurant in Chicago. Hello, sir. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Nice to have you here. Excellent. It's exciting. exciting, uh,
2: exciting format.
0: So you're a Midwestern guy?
2: I am. Grew up in uh, in the Midwest my entire life, actually. Uh, born and raised in Ann Arbor, just Ypsilanti, Michigan, and then moved to Chicago at a, a very young age, actually. Grew up in the suburbs, and then after college... Uh, what did you do in college? Many different things, as you could could probably guess from someone who has a very short attention span. And, uh, what did you say? Enjoy. Oh, sorry. Uh, I enjoy I thought it, you were talking about me. I enjoy. I was talking about <laughs> you actually. I'm glad you picked up on that. No, I, I, I bounced around. I changed majors a lot and, and did a lot of different things. I definitely explored life to the fullest, not just in class, but everywhere. recreational, Anywhere I could, could find an enjoyable experience. I tend to, uh, you're a hedonist. I am. I tend to take things to, uh, to an extreme at times, but, uh, it plays to my personality. I like to get fully involved in everything that I do, and I can in times can be some of, some of my greatest strengths. I think. How are you paying the bills? In college or yeah. now? In college, for restaurants. From the age of fifteen, I was working, and I've always had kind of a, a substantial work ethic. I, you know, got a work permit at a young age to go into a, a cafe that was in my hometown. I did prep work from like five o'clock in the morning until six forty-five, and then I went to school, and then I went back and worked dinner service, and then closed the restaurant, helped the manager close. And, uh, Why'd you do that? Cared about it. Wanted to. I wanted to be as involved as I possibly could be in every aspect of the business. And he
0: seemed like a good guy, or you were
2: learning, or both? I was learning. It wasn't a passionate establishment. I think I was more passionate than most everyone else that was there. But
0: You wanted to learn how to cook, or you wanted to learn how to be an adult?
2: I wanted to learn how to be successful in a work environment. That was what was important to me. How can I contribute is always something that I hold in the back of my head. Like, what else could I do here? You know, this needs to be done. It's not getting done. I could do it. Let me do it. And, you know, I've been fortunate to work for people who have been like, all right.
0: But non passionate environment sounds like a bunch of slack asses. So how did you deal with that? Um, Bringing your work ethic and making that melt. I,
2: that's one thing that I, I always preach now to, to, my, to my staff, which is don't worry about that guy worry about you. Where are your standards? What are your standards for yourself? You want me to stop asking questions? Is that what you're saying? No, <laughs> just ask better questions. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you so know, you well, can have, you can have this standard for yourself. And this is, I'm stealing this from, from a, a former chef of mine, but. Who was that? Charlie Trotter. Oh, okay. I you heard can him. have, you, you've heard of him.
0: He's a good guy. Well, uh, I mean, rest in peace.
2: Yes, indeed. We, we miss him and. Honestly, working for him was the most impactful experience that I've had in my life. But how did that happen? um, Well, that happened when I consulted uh, a a colleague and friend, I think, of of both of ours, uh, Robert Hood, um, who has an important distribution company in Chicago now, former sommelier from Charlie Trotter. As I said, Robert, I'm going to do this. I want to get involved with wine. I want to be as serious as I possibly can be. I'm committed. I'm into it. What do I need to do? And why wine? Why wine? For me... Wine was an answer to, I guess I'm a, I'm a good learner, but I'm not necessarily the best student in a classroom setting. I like to connect the dots very quickly. I like to be, I like to have real time application for the things that I'm learning. So classroom settings for me were always a little stodgy, not quite as exciting as, you know, I'm going to learn this about the historic nature of this culture, geography, science, everything wrapped into one with wine. It's just, for me, I just find it so enchanting and just enticing, but at the same time, informative and just gets those wheels spinning. And I enjoy that. It's education, but an
0: evening out at the same
2: time. Indeed. And then it's it's equally as immediately applicable. I can learn something and turn around and share it with someone else or better a guest experience in, in five seconds.
0: So how did you meet Robert Hood?
2: Um, he was a purveyor for one of the restaurants that I first worked at when I moved to Chicago and he would come in and do wine trainings for us. And I, I just approached him on my own as a young person. I said, you know, everything that you say about wine seems a little bit more on the level than what I get from other people. Would you mind if you came 15 minutes early and I picked your brain about this, or if you have something open and I'm not working, I'll come meet you wherever you're tasting. And it just kind of snowballed from there.
0: How long did it take you to realize his name wasn't Robin Hood?
2: It took me, it took, well, at that point, I mean, he bounced back and forth, but at that point, he was Rob. Previous to that, he was Bob, but now he's, he's respectable type, so it's Robert. So it was never, easier back then. I've never called him Robin Hood, and I Because I've actually done that. I don't like that mental image, to be honest with you.
0: I don't... You're not a friar tuck.
2: Just a tights
0: thing we don't need. <laughs> <laughs> that was just one movie. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's, <laughs> it's, it's... Clearly, you saw the Earl Flynn. For, for some people, at work. Kevin Costner
2: was a different... Different guy, yeah, but you know, picturing my friends in tights—it's just not, <laughs> you know, something that I'm, I'm, I'm going to do right now. Maybe later. I'm an easygoing guy. I'm not. I don't judge. But what do you think Robert saw in you? I think he saw in me, honestly, something that he has in in, in himself, which is a, a very, very, very serious work ethic. Uh, probably more so than myself. Definitely more so than myself. I mean, that guy is—he's a machine. He just. Goes and goes and goes and goes and never settles for anything less than the best. And once he gets that, he's trying to make it better. And I think, hopefully, I hope. I mean, he took a he took a, a chance on me, introduced me to Charlie or Chef Trotter, and
0: uh, did you guys have a conversation before that?
2: Yeah, he told me uh, I'm going to do this for you, but don't come crying back to me when when he works you over because he's gonna work you over. And I was like, I can do it, I can handle it. And there were definitely times when. When I was in there and I was like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't handle this.
0: Were you ever picked on as a kid by other kids?
2: All the time. Yeah.
0: Do you think that gave you some good training?
2: I think so. I mean, I think it gives you a little bit of perspective in terms of, it allows you to take a step back and say like, this is what's happening to me right now, but in the future, this is what could be happening to me. And, you know, it makes you a little bit less quick to, to react in a, in a more spontaneous nature and make some more calculated decisions, I guess what was
0: it like interviewing at charters
2: nerve wracking really nerve wracking. I was a young guy. I mean, I was very 23? 23, 23. Yeah. And I was, you know, you know, in that mindset of like, I'm pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm a I'm, hot shot. Yeah. yeah I'm I got good. Yeah. I sell more than everyone. And I right, can, right. I can sling the big bottles of wine and I'll get that 10 top to order Imperial and, you know, kind of going in there and just having an idea, but you don't really have an idea. You think you do. I thought I did. I was like, I know. I mean, this is, you know, a higher level of service than I've ever been a part of, but I can do it and I can pick it up. And it's, for me, the, the lesson to be learned there was like, you can't ever truly grasp it until you let go of that and say, you know what? I don't, I don't know this. I don't have a grasp on it. I need to allow myself to be broken down and rebuilt in this image, if you will. Did you watch The Six Billion Dollar Man before you saw it? I didn't. I haven't, <laughs> se- I haven't seen that movie at all.
0: All right, because I was going to ask if you made that noise when you moved, like.
2: I do do that. I can do the robot. If you if you want to see that later, I'll show you.
0: I got what, some. What was Charlie like the first time you met him?
2: Intentionally intimidating,
0: I think. Yeah, uh, you know, I think just that gave seems me the, to come across from pretty much everyone. He just gave me one it. of
2: the. Obviously, you can't record this, uh, but one of the.
0: The once overs, yeah. The looks started up Started at my
2: eye, down at my shoes, back to my eyes, and. just. Cocked his head to the side a little bit, like, hmm,
0: I've seen you. Because when you do it, it looks like Shaft. But <laughs> when he does it, I don't know. It's
2: pretty intimidating. He's he was he's an he was an intimidating person, especially especially at, at such a young age. When you know, I held him in, and I think most of of the community in very high esteem.
0: So I was like, had you read books from him before you worked? There? Yes,
2: I read more of his books in the week prior to my interview than I had ever read before. I mean, I read both of the service and excellence books and, you know, really poured over those. So
0: over the 10 years you were there, did you find that what was in the books matched what was in the reality? I did. Yeah,
2: I did. I thought it was, you know, in any, in any kind of setting like that where you're putting something in print, is it, is it capturing the full story? No, there are, there are intangibles that just don't get translated on paper. I think anyone who spent time there could, could tell you that and probably would support that statement. But yes, I found them to be, definitely pertinent and applicable to the environment that I walked into. And any restaurant, it changes over time. And so those were snapshots of a certain point in time that I wasn't there for, at least for the first two uh, service and excellence books. But you definitely found those underlying tenants to be present for certain.
0: Was 10 years a long time to be working there in terms of how other, long other people worked there?
2: I mean, there were people that worked there from the day the restaurant opened to the day that it closed, so, or almost until the day that it closed. So I felt like, like tenure in restaurants of that nature are interesting. You know, you get your people who are intrigued and, and, and passionate and, and experience success and continue to grow and grow and grow and stay for three, four or five years. But then you get your other folks who are looking for, you know, that experience, but only to add diversity to their Resume or to their service prowess, and they say for eighteen months. (laughs) And then there's people that yeah, after ten days, they're like, seriously, no.
0: What was the shortest you ever saw someone work there?
2: One minute.
0: Yeah, because that jives with my experience of other restaurants too.
2: Yeah, like literally, like you just got here and you're you're crying,
0: really? (laughs) Yeah, I had a (laughs) a girl put down her purse, and then like three minutes later, I saw her going for that purse. Exactly. Oh,
2: already? You didn't? We didn't even? Yeah. All right. I'll, but you see that happen and you're like, it's probably for the best because, you know, I hats off. Good for you. It's not, I could never preach that that's the kind of environment for everyone to work in.
0: Did Charlie ever ask you that question about how you pursue excellence in your other part of your life outside I of work?
2: I can't tell you how many times he asked me that question. Um, and I always, I always took that question to heart. Um, obviously, we did a lot of different things philanthropically. So there were different groups that we would play to. Some of them would like to hear a very serious answer to that question. Others, you know, a more playful response is appropriate. But
0: Was Charlie a more playful guy?
2: Yeah, definitely. His interactions were
0: always a
2: little sarcastic and a little bit dry, but that plays to my sense of humor as well. So we got along well in a playful sense like that. But I would always answer that question point blank with the 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 topic that I hinted at earlier, which is, the way to pursue excellence for me is just to be my biggest critic. No one, no one looks at what I do with a more keen eye or holds me to higher standards than I do myself. So that's, I feel like a, a way to experience success in, in any, in any career path or even just in life in general.
0: Charlie seemed big on surveys, like giving them out, getting customer satisfaction notes, asking employees how he was as a boss on a regular basis. Always. What was that like for you? Uh, funny,
2: um, but also very informative, you know it's always interesting to see you know when you're in a restaurant it's is the customer always right? are you going to go in that direction, or are you going to go in the direction of well, this is what they had to say, this, this, and this just don't apply, but this and this, we could take something from that, and that's that's kind of how we use that as a tool, not saying like this person said this about this person, so you're fired. Moreover, like, how could you in the future use this interaction to perhaps improve your your ability to interact with a person of this nature? Not saying that they're right. Not saying their complaint is valid. But how could we have danced around that situation a little bit differently to given them the perception that they were getting the experience that they really truly
0: wanted? Because in my career, what I've seen long term is that restaurants are mostly about repetitive experiences. So... If you didn't hit it the first time, when it happens to you again a year later, you can kind of maybe have a better solution if you thought about what went wrong the first time. I
2: definitely agree. I mean, I think as a service professional, we are uh, some of all of the experiences that we previously had. And the more that you've had, the more diverse your ability to take a quick step to the left and or spin move here and accommodate a, a request that seems insane or ridiculous at the moment, but... You know, you have that insight as to where they're actually coming from and what it is that they want. And maybe you can't accommodate that specific request, but here, we'll do this. And it's not something that this person asked for, but it satisfies the internal urge that they have to get this level of service that they want to see from you.
0: So a lot of times today when I look around restaurants that aren't some of the ones you've worked in, I don't necessarily think that people really care where people are coming from who are customers outside of the fact that they want to come in and dine have a certain experience that's somewhat defined for them and then leave, you know, after paying money. Do you think it's something that Charlie wanted to do to figure out where people were coming from and give them that or no? Definitely.
2: Definitely. To, that was the, the, one of the mainstay tenants of the style of service was look at these individuals and why are they here? Are they here because it's their anniversary? Or are they here because they're in Chicago for three days and they're trying to dine and they're trying to have six meals and the, Best six restaurants they can get to while they're here. Are they? Is this? Are they going to come back ever, or is this a once in a lifetime experience for them? And uh, that was something that was definitely paid close attention to. And I think now, personally, as time goes on, the importance of that and the ability to do that because of social media has grown and grown and grown. You know, someone's coming in. Are they tweeting about the restaurant? Or are they doing this? It's, you know, Chef Ackett's my current employer, pays very close attention to that. Something I mean, that, that he and uh, his business partner, Nick Konas are very adamant about just having that information because information is power. You know? The more you know, the more you can customize the experience and that's what people appreciate.
0: So what was Charlie like as a well? boss?
2: Very demanding but also very skillful and talented as a leader in terms of getting the very, very most he possibly could out of everyone on the team and doing so in a way that Was informative and educational and exhausting, but still informative and educational. So, a very talented leader, I would say.
0: Were there different
2: periods to Charlie?
0: It seems like, you know, late period Charlie's a little different. You know, in the same way I might talk about, like, different periods for Picasso or something.
2: I I definitely would say so, but I also have to couple that with the fact that there were periods for me which were are a lot more substantial in terms of my own perception. So when I first started working there, I, I thought, oh man, this guy's just, he's just boom, boom on me, militant, has to be perfect, has to be perfect. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? And then you get to the point where it's like, oh, okay, I've progressed to the level where now I understand where you're coming from. I can predict the problems that you're going to see, and I can en route those issues and, and prevent them from occurring. So, you know, it, it becomes a little bit more of a, you know not a friendship so to speak but more of a familiar interaction where it's you know he looks at me and I'm like I I got it chef and then you know and in towards the end of my career there I spent a little bit of time out in Las Vegas uh so it was more of a long distance communication that I had from him there so that for me was a little bit of uh, a little bit more of a disconnect he's definitely someone I enjoyed speaking to face to face um and then when I came back from Las Vegas I just you know how you you get to that point in your career where you're like, I'm ready to I'm ready to see an, a new experience. I'm ready to see something else. So, I think Charlie was always a dynamic character, and I don't know. I, I think that for every single person that worked there, they would probably describe the progression of errors of his personality differently.
0: Is that fair? A hundred percent. A lot of people talk about the Vegas venture as kind of like that big budget movie that no one ended up going to see. That's pretty much what happened.
2: Yeah. It was awesome, though. I mean, the space was great. The concept was so diverse and dynamic from the cocktail program to the Kaiseki bar, the wine program. You know, the restaurant was only open for a little over two, two years, so we didn't get a chance to develop it as much as we would have liked. But the culinary staff was amazing. The food product, as always, that we were using was, you know, the very, very best you can get. And, you know, that's always something that's always sung true to me. Is, you know, if we're offering the very best product, I feel like I must live up to that standard in terms of what we offer for beverage and for service. But yeah, it wasn't received in the way that we had hoped, to be honest. But
0: what was it like dealing with Vegas clientele?
2: Difficult, difficult. But, you know, in any service situation, you're going to encounter difficult guests and you're going to encounter great guests. You're going to encounter people who want nothing more than to hear you talk about what it is that you love and what you're passionate about to people that are going to want to dictate every aspect of their of their dining experience. So um, I wouldn't say better. I, you know, I, I hate to draw those comparisons. I think that in that setting, at that time, in that specific restaurant, the clientele was definitely one of the difficult cards we were dealt. But that's not to say that we didn't have some great folks who traveled from abroad, from Europe, just to dine there and, and eat at the kitchen table and have the the full five-and-a-half-hour tasting menu experience. But clientele is clientele, I guess.
0: What about Charlie as a chef? I mean, he wrote a book about vegetables. He seemed drawn to fish preparations quite a great deal in different iterations. A little bit south of the border, but a little bit inspired by Asia too. What was the style?
2: Um, Well, that's an easy one for me to answer. The style of, of Chef Trotter's cuisine was always rooted in European tradition with a departure from cream and butter and the utilization of, you know, vegetables and and fresh seasonal items to take the place of what might in typical European cuisine be a buttered sauce or something of that nature an asparagus puree instead to, to add that textural element and, and give the dish color, flavor, meaning, but, um, but still be kind of, like you said, touching on the seafood lighter, leaving you feeling comfortable at the end of the meal was, was his goal. How long was a normal meal at Trotter's? It depended on what you did, to be honest with you. I mean, for the typical guest, your first visit, I've never been here, tell me what to do. Do you like wine? We do. What kind of wine do you like? I'm not really sure. Okay, well, why don't you let us pair some wines with the menu for you? I'm not talking about two and a half, three hours. But there were times when, I mean, six, seven. Eight-hour dining experiences, uh, based on you know Charlie was a if you're a table of six gentlemen and they they just keep ordering bottles of Burgundy or Bordeaux. All right, well we're going to keep making red wine courses until they get tired of drinking red wine, and then we'll see if they want to have some sweet wine. We'll make some sweet wine courses or cheese courses or whatever it may be. So typical experience, two and a half three hours, but that in no way limits anyone to you yeah. know if someone came in said they wanted a steak and wanted to be out in 45 minutes. You'd
0: be like, all right, make a mistake.
2: It's an expensive steak.
0: but How much was Charlie an
2: entertainer? Very much. Very much. Uh, I think that was something that he took to, at least from my experience, and again, I can't speak definitively for the entire 25 years that the restaurant was open. I wasn't there the whole time, but in my experience with him, it was something that he took to Um, I think he enjoyed it, but I think it also provided him an outlet for some of his leadership capabilities in terms of, you know, let me, I can show you how to, to MC this room right now. This is how we're going to make, this is how we're going to take this experience and, and raise it to here. When they leave, they're going to be talking about Charlie said this or Chef Trotter did that or, so he was very much an
0: entertainer. Who were his people? I mean, who were the people that he was most drawn to serving and who were the people who came back the most? What, what defined them?
2: Um, his, his interest was very much in wine. So that was, you know, a, a fabric of the restaurant, obviously cuisine, ambiance and service also weighed in. He considered those all four things to be on equal, equal pillars. But you know, the wine community, you know, he'd love to do things like, yes, you're coming in for a table of two with your, with your wife and you want to bring 16 different bottles of Burgundy that you want to drink throughout the night. Let us know what they are. We'll make a special menu. So, those are the kind of folks that I think really played to his true passion, his internal drive and goal with the restaurant, and quite obviously, those are the people that then continue to frequent the restaurant as well.
0: When I look at Charlie's regulars that I've waited on in other restaurants, one thing that seems to define them for me is confident beyond wealthy. They seem to have a certain degree of i'm mean, i'm comfortable with being in charge yes so i would
2: i would I would agree with that I think. I think confident is better than comfortable with being in charge because their confidence wasn't only in themselves. It was also in the restaurant and Chef Trotter and everyone else's ability to craft a a truly unique experience. So that even someone who is confident and who may in another setting say, I'm so confident that I'm going to dictate what's happening here. uh, In that setting, they were a little bit more likely to Let go of the reins, if you will. Which is always exciting. When I think back to the
0: 90s, I think of hedonism in a way that had a lot to do with food and wine. You know, this idea was almost kind of like a a post-rock and roll idea of like, we're white guys and we want to enjoy the best in life. And the best in life is foie gras, Mm -hmm. burgundy and Bordeaux. And we're going to drink all of it. Yep. And uh, sometimes I wonder if that took years off Charlie's life. And sometimes I wonder what that environment was like to be around, and I wonder if you might answer either of those questions. I mean, I
2: wasn't there for that
0: that time period, but you definitely could feel the remnants of that
2: kind of experience. Uh, a good example to that fact would be the, the stories that I heard about the day Charlie decided not to serve cocktails anymore.
0: How you know, did that go down?
2: Basically, a, a group of individuals just like, or similar to what you're describing, not judging them, but just, you know, as as we all know, dining is a subjective experience and you should get what you want. Uh, but, you know, they were much more intently focused on getting cocktails and not not today's kind of more modern craft cocktail, just vodka, oh, vodka. vodka yeah. and ice and drinking them. Then hearing about the cuisine on the menu for the evening or the seeing the wine list. And he just, you know, he was in the kitchen and he just... It's like, what's going on with this table? And they're like, well, this is what they're doing. And he was like, that's it. No more. Take all that stuff. Put it in a room downstairs. We're serving wine now.
0: That's what we do. But he did the same thing with gras, actually, but in a more quieter way, where he just kind of stopped serving it one day and didn't serve it for a while.
2: That's true. Um, I think, I mean, that's an interesting point to touch on because I think that he would want my response to be what exactly what it's going to be, which is he, in the media, kind of got swept up as someone who is an advocate for not serving foie gras, when in fact he was an advocate for not telling people what they can and cannot do, and an advocate for individual business owners making individual decisions based on their own personal beliefs. So he decided to stop serving foie gras, and it kind of got this thing where oh, Charlie Trotter's an advocate for animal rights, and, you know, people call them, they're like, can you do a spot? And he's like, no, I'm not, no, you shouldn't tell anyone what to do. People should make their own informed decisions and, you know, live with the consequences, so.
0: What was Charlie's relationship like with his family?
2: Very close. I mean, I, I, you know, having spent so much time there and having started at, at such a young age, definitely grew to know them quite well and still enjoy the, the times when I get to see and and communicate with them. But he's very, very, he was a very sturdy family man. Very, very passionate about family matters and bringing people together and making sure that, you know, even in in a, in a more holistic sense that everyone was just, had a sense of togetherness, if you will. That's what I picked up on. I mean, I obviously not a part of his family directly, but from the interactions and obviously it was a family run restaurant. So I got to interact with them and it was an important part of his life for sure. Does it seem like to you that sometimes he's still around? Yeah, I mean, I think you can pick up that sense from some of the responses that I've given where it's, I still, you know, I still, I still feel that, that presence and I still look to some of the, the guidance that he gave me uh, to answer things that I, enqu- I encountered today. and Valuable lessons I've, I've learned. Do some of those carry over into your personal life? I think so. I think for myself, I, I really approach life in all facets in the same regard. I don't really have a segregation between what I do at work versus what I do at home versus what I do if I'm traveling. I'm, I just try to be true to myself. And I think that that shaves away a, a layering of complexity and or confusion, depending on how you want to look at it, which makes it a little bit easier to enjoy yourself. But does it also mean you end up working a lot? Yes what's that really mean? Working a lot? Um, well, I'm the kind of person that I, I don't know why it's just an innate nature of mine that I just, it's hard for me to step away from something if I feel like it's not exactly where it needs to be. And I never really feel like anything's exactly where it needs to be. So combine those two elements and it's, you know, I could, I could leave now, but if I stay, I could do this and then I could do this and I could do this. And is that, you know, is that pushing us forward? I think so. Um, has it caused me to be met with success in my career? Yes. Has I have I made a lot of sacrifices in life because of that? Yes. I guess. I mean, that
0: seems like a a great prerequisite for management. I suppose so. Did you look back on some periods of your life and say, well, "Wow, I guess I didn't really have a lot of free time." I, I guess so. But
2: I, at the same point, I. Did have a lot of experiences. So I don't really have a regret in that regard. If you think about it, like, was I just, if I was just working tirelessly and not garnering anything from it or gaining anything from it, then yes, I would feel regretful. But because it would, that time was so jam packed with the experiences of traveling and, you travel and meeting, with yeah, definitely quite a bit, meeting new people, meeting winemakers, meeting purveyors, talking with chefs, working with chefs, all the events that I did, working with you know, top chefs from all over the world and getting a chance even for one day to experience their culinary approach and their style of cuisine and, and, you know, having the opportunity to taste some things here and there, you know, even mid-service, you know. So in that regard, I think the the short answer is, sure, I regret not having been able to do other things, but at the same point, the things that I did get to do would not have been
0: attainable for me had I not been in that environment. What's Stuff. it like trying to set up the charters shop, you know, abroad or in a different city? Pretty awesome. The team. how did it go down?
2: Uh, basically, you bring your suitcase to work on Saturday night, work service until 2.30, 3.30 in the morning, and then head to the airport, get into the, the venue, wherever it may be, start setting up, start prepping. Chef shows up later in the day and decides that nothing is satisfactory on any level. And then you run around and try and correct all of the things that that he's unsatisfied with and or that he's just pointed out because everything was actually kind of on the level but he's still that person and that's his personality and he wants to make sure that everyone knows paying attention so don't i got some great compliments i learned how to travel really well with with chef trotter i uh i I perfected the art of sleeping on airplanes i think in a very
0: remarkable fashion you go to a new place and you want to do Trotters level thing? It was ever times that was a sticky situation to try to make that actually happen?
2: Oh, absolutely. There were a lot of times where people got you know, you had to throw a little elbow here or hip check there to get people to either pick up the pace or get it out of the way. But either way, it was gonna happen. So it's just kind of one of those one of those realities that we all accepted as a team
0: and, you know,
2: worked worked to realize.
0: What was the progression with wine with you?
2: Wine for me was an interest at at an early early part in my career, obviously I was, as I mentioned to you, using the hospitality and service industry to afford my educational, more and more formative educational experiences. And I quickly kind of fell into the understanding that, you know, if you have greater knowledge about products that you're serving, it will empower you to be a more valued employee and therefore a more well compensated employee. I had a, a fortunate privilege of working for in a small kind of chef driven restaurant during college for a gentleman who was a really impassioned uh, wine enthusiast and beverage director. We didn't have a sommelier, so to speak, on the floor. So I was not even 21 at that time, but still trying to sell bottles of wine. And, and this, was, this was the experience where someone actually took me by the arm and said, listen, you can sell them a $200 bottle of wine that's good, or you can listen to them Sell them $140 a hundred and forty dollar bottle of wine that they're gonna really like, and they're gonna give you a bigger tip, and they're gonna come back and see you next week. Do you understand that dynamic? And I was like, now I get it. Thank you. But that was my that was my, actually
0: a rare thing to say. Like, I mean usually is, people say it the other way.
2: And I, I took it to heart though. And I think that's a tenant that I've never let go of. I think that's a primary responsibility of a somewhere in a restaurant. It's not about it's not about getting the sale, it's about making that relationship work and and showcasing not only your own prowess and knowledge, but taking someone and saying, hey, listen, I care about what you think and what you like, and let me show you that by offering you a selection or selections based upon our interactions. So that was where I kind of entered into that world, and I was, you know, I was fortunate that he would, you know, of course, thirst for knowledge. I'm trying to do this job, sell these wines. I've never, I haven't had many of these wines, but I'm asking questions, and, you know, I started to come in early and when when he was tasting with purveyors, they would, you know, slide the glass off to the side while I was setting something up and try things. And then and, and pretty much snowballed from there. I just, the, like I mentioned earlier about the complexity and the diversity of the topic matter when you talk about wine, it's just so enrapturing. It's just like, I can learn about six different things all at the same time, and it tastes delicious. This is, this is great. I like this. Let's keep going. And there's probably some, you know,
0: pretty classic, pretty age-worthy with age wines in the cellar at trotters that you got to try.
2: I I definitely had I mean I had a an experience that I would be hard pressed to to mirror or duplicate to be honest with the not only the wines that were there, the wines that were present when I started, the wines that we were able to bring in while I was there and and the the, the intelligence and capacity for knowledge of all the different individuals that were a part of that scene and environment just tasting with with minds of that caliber is just, you know, over and over and over again for years on end. It's just, it's so, so compelling and such an educational experience. I can't even, it's really hard for me to put it into words, to be honest with you. But yes, the opportunity to taste incredible, incredible wines of age and pedigree was a
0: daily experience for me for a good amount of time. So often the menu would change at Trotters. It's a lighter hand. Did you find that you needed different answers to what were different problems on a regular basis coming out of the cellar? In terms of pairings, we never really looked at it as problematic because it's kind of the exciting,
2: you know, like we were speaking about earlier, just you, you're you're a gunslinger and it's like, throw it at me. Show me what you got. I can do this. I can work it out. So problematic, no. I think the key there was just having things on hand and having a, a smartly built selection of wines to draw from, which Charlie was very gracious in allowing us to have a lot of, a lot of inventory in the restaurant. And we, we always appreciated that. He's, but yeah.
0: Did you ever find that service director goals and sommelier goals weren't the same goals? I find
2: that all the time. Um, How does that play out? For me now, um, it's an internal debate because I'm the beverage director and the service director. So those arguments take place in my head. At Trotters, it was a little bit different. Those those roles were segregated for most of the time that I was there, and you know, it was it was a a democratic, democratically conducted discussion. You know, where with the she, staff. Yep, with the staff and with with Shep Trotter, he would say, you know, I support what you're saying. It's important that we give these people the best possible wine experience. However, it's important that he feels as though his contributions are being being appreciated and if he has a strong opinion about something we need to find you need to the two of you need to find a way to work this out i can stand here and watch you do it or you can just do
0: it on your own but figure it out and when did the transition to alinea come and how did it come about
2: um for me uh, it came after you know i i went out to las vegas i when when we first opened the restaurant in las vegas i actually for about six weeks or so i spent what was it like sunday monday and tuesday in las vegas and then i would fly back and work uh, Wednesday through Saturday in Chicago and I did that for a little while and then everything was up and running and it went well for a good a good period of time the the aforementioned difficulties of course but uh and then we encountered a a a period where we needed to replace both the general manager and the head sommelier at the restaurant and chef was very committed to sending someone from Chicago Uh, so I went out there and then did that for about 18 months. And when I came back to Chicago, I just, I felt differently. I had learned a lot about managerial philosophies and I I felt like I had made a a growth in my time in Las Vegas that just kind of clicked something in my head to where I was like, I've gotten, this has been a, a lucrative experience for me, but it's now time. I have to see it from a different perspective. I have to see something else.
0: You felt like you'd learned what you could learn there.
2: I had I did. Not to say that, you know, I had mastered everything No, no, in no regard is that the case. But I was in a mental state where I felt as though my knowledge increase would be much more rapid at an alternate location. Just and then there's the opportunity to go to alinea which you know, obviously, is a great opportunity. Progressive cuisine, a chef that's on the cutting edge, and they offered me a, a position. I, you know,
0: couldn't refuse. What did you have to learn, or what was invaluable for you to learn as a manager?
2: in Las Vegas, people management, taking my somewhat focused and direct personality and coupling that with some kind of positive reinforcement and not just being kind of the the whip or the the arrow and and saying, you know, that's wrong, but here's how we're going to learn from it. And, you know, trying to offer a, a duality of situations, you know, criticism for certain, you have to, but also empowerment, building people up. I think one of the core managerial philosophies that I like is just empowering everyone that I possibly can to the extent that I possibly can. As much as you can get them involved and take ownership,
0: that's what you should do, personally. And did you find that it was important for you to stay calm? Because of the way that you speak, you have a certain level approach to speaking.
2: I feel pretty excited right now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hard to tell, my friend. So well, you know, thinking. I think I, de- I definitely... I guess, I guess I've gotten that a lot. People tell me that I have more of a candor or, you know, just kind of an even keeled delivery. Um, And was that something that was always there or it developed over time? I, I think it was something that was always there that developed over time. If that makes sense. I think it's an innate part of my personality that I have grown and it's helped me.
0: Would you recommend that to other people?
2: Try and stay calm if you can. If you're on the floor of a restaurant, yeah, keep your wits about you and you'll make smarter decisions, right? I mean, not even on the floor of a restaurant, anywhere in life. You know, there are, there are always experiences that kind of take us out of uh, the here and now and, you know, tend to make a rash decision and you might regret it later. But, yeah, I guess for the most part, I'm pretty calm. But there are plenty of people that have worked for me that, or with me, I should say, that would offer like, you to, that dude yeah he's yeah, crazy yeah i'll right, right. just scream it right me yeah, yeah, yeah. all day long <laughs> it's like
0: why does he hate me <laughs> i'm trying my best so you you meet grant at a and how does that go down
2: oh that was a pretty interesting meeting to be honest with you i i uh i went in just sat with him and he basically just it was more of a conversation than an interview he wasn't you know he, he understood where i'd come from and the pedigree involved there and wasn't really interested in hearing about what specifically time frame did I do this or did I do that or what my specific responsibilities were. He was more interested in hearing about the overall experience, if you will, what I thought about the time in Las Vegas and what I would have done differently. Had it.
0: The takeaways. Yeah. Not the line items, but the exactly,
2: takeaways. Exactly, exactly. What, what I had emotionally experienced and, and what I felt that had added to me as a service professional. And uh, Had you met him before you worked for him? I met him... On a couple of occasions, I mean, obviously, I was in and around that restaurant. It's right down the street from where I was working.
0: Uh, uh, they're he, close by. Yeah, Trotters a block and a half I mean. away.
2: Yeah. Um, my my first truest time meeting him, or or most most memorable time, I mean, there were a few occasions where we, we were in the same room. We passed by one another, but I waited on him uh, at Charlie Trotter's, and it was a pretty intense experience. I was very nervous. It was kind of earlier on in my time at Trotter's. And, uh, you know, he was a, a very stoic but perceptive diner. And uh, it was flattering to me when I was sitting and having a conversation with him years later that he actually remembered that experience, remembered the table that he was sitting at, he remembered
0: some of the wine pairings that we had offered. In a good way or in a, that was a terrible way?
2: Uh, you know, he remembered them. He didn't really give me he that. He didn't give you the, no, never you the high of,
0: sign or the low sign?
2: No, it was more of the... uh I remember that one pairing, and you're like, "Okay, smiling?" No, yeah, he's not, yeah, yeah. He's not smiling, but no, he's very, you know, he's very direct. But uh, that's a good thing, I think, when it comes to being. Uh,
0: I found him to be, as a diner, very quiet.
2: Yeah, definitely, definitely, but perceptive.
0: Seems like he was taking everything in.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it depends on the environment as well, and I, I mean, I often, I haven't had that many occasions to, to dine with him myself, but in terms of uh, seeing him in that setting, yeah, definitely quiet, but yet perceptive, kind of looking around, surveying the scene, and, you know, taking things in, like you said.
0: And he had worked at Trotters, but in a different era than you. Yes, prior to my time being there. Do you guys ever talk about your respective experiences there?
2: We've never compared our experiences there, but we definitely, I mean, there's definitely a, a little bit of a banter that goes goes back and forth. He'll reference my time there. And obviously one of the things that I also, you know, that that I also offer at Alinea is, you know, just, just my knowledge and understanding and familiarity with people who dined just down the street frequently.
0: So he, that's something that he cares. People of up. means who can go out to nice restaurants. Right. Who so here. he asks,
2: what did they do It you know, occasionally, what did you do at Trotter's? When this, Did people do this at Trotter's? People take this many pictures at Trotter's? <laughs> yeah, right, right. That kind of thing. So he's he's always curious to to kind of tap that resource. As with, I mean, you, that's what you do, right? If How
0: have, are the service styles the same or different? Oh man, that's a tough one.
2: I think that there are definitely some similarities, but there are some very very significant
0: differences as well. Um, For someone like me that's never dined it either, I mean, what would be those differences that oh, I could understand? So,
2: so tough to say because, again, my personality and my own progression plays into it. But I think that the nature of the cuisine at Alinea being as whimsical and playful as it is with the different service pieces and, 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 and progressive culinary techniques requires the service to kind of rise to that occasion, if you will. Um, whereas I think the, and not in a bad way, the, the service at Trotter's was a little bit more focused on the technical precision and then obviously, the the difference of wine service in both restaurants, you know, whereas at Trotters there was a lot of lot more sales of bottles, bottles of wine and you know, creating courses to go with those bottles of wine, whereas at Alinea it's a fixed menu that's not even presented to the guests prior to their their arrival or even to the beginning of the meal. So it's a little bit more ace of a spontaneous nature in terms of them not knowing what's coming. But then again, the focus also there is on, on pairing food and wine together. And that's the mainstay of what we do is, is offer the wine pairings at Alinea. So the wine pairings are very popular. Very popular.
0: And Would you say that Alinea requires more or less from the guests than Trotter's? Again, a diff- difficult question, but I think
2: the answer lies in the subtle differences between the restaurants themselves. I think Charlie Trotter's was a little bit more... Of a uh, malleable experience based on the interests and specifically wine interests of the guest, whereas Alinea is asking the guest to do more of uh, i don't know just take a plunge, jump in, come come and enjoy what we're we're showcasing you tonight for you tonight, and uh, just allow yourself to be kind of taken over and let go so I think it's I think both restaurants. Asked and offered a lot of the clients, but in subtle different ways. But the th- common theme, though, I will say is that um, it's, they were both, they were and are environments where you kind of have to let yourself go a little bit to get the most out of the experience. Does that make sense to you?
0: Do you think that the ticketing system has an effect on the experience for guests at line? I mean, does that make it different? in terms of how they dine or what happens when they die?
2: I don't think that it has that significant of an impact on their actual dining experience. I, other than the fact that the reservation process is much different, if you will. Um, so it's a, it's a different beast. It's a different system to get comfortable with for some people who are, you know, very savvy and, and, and and very computer literate. It's, a secondary thought. It's like, oh, I can do this, it's really easy. Other people who are used to, you know, having someone that they can call and like a reservation and it's a little bit of an adjustment for them. But I don't think that I don't think that it impacts the experience after that process has been completed. After the tickets have been purchased, I think people pretty much feel the same way. Though I'm not again a diner. You're not a diner, yeah. You know? So I can't speak for everyone out there.
0: What's Chef Ackett's like as a boss?
2: Um, similar to how he is as a diner, to be honest with you. He is, for the most part, quiet, though he can get very loud if something's not going well, very to the point, very interested in progression and development, and very disinterested in lack of change and or things getting sour or things losing focus, um, he definitely is the kind of person who feels as though if we're not moving forward, we're moving backwards, and there's no way around that. Um, Did you but, ever yeah. talk to him about where that may have came from? Um, I think that I have, and I know that you know a lot of his drive and his focus and 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 his ideals in terms of approaching leadership uh, come from uh, Chef Thomas Keller and his experience at the French laundry. But I think that much like myself, he's had that internal drive. Mm-hmm
0: for much of his life, if not all of it. And what about the wine side? I mean, a lot of pairings, but what's the cellar like?
2: Uh, The wine cellar is, I mean, spatially we're limited, so we have to be very smart about what we choose to bring in. As I was mentioning to you before, we like to have things on hand that allow us uh, the opportunity to be spontaneous and to cover a pairing for a course that we just found out about, you know, two minutes prior to its... uh, Hitting a table? Leaving leaving the kitchen. Does that Uh, happen sometimes? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, the the culinary staff is very communicative with the wine team and definitely give us the information that we need. However, you never want to limit creativity, right? So if they get, you know, maybe this just came in. They didn't know it was coming, but here it is. This fish from Hawaii. Well, it's beautiful. We're going to serve it to, you know, at least some of the guests that are coming in. We have it. So this is what we're doing you know, and that's when you have to really kick it into to fifth gear and start making those wheels spin and come up with some agreeable ideas. But the the cellar itself is focused on offering guests who perhaps don't have an interest in having a wine pairing and or have an interest in seeing some of the wines that we're pairing with dishes, but also watching a bottle of wine develop over time and and and, and taking that side of wine appreciation. So,
0: how would you say the selections are characterized?
2: I think that we have a a pretty strong representation of what you would probably uh, attribute to being the more classic regions around the world with, you know, a a focus on bringing in things that have a little bit of bottle maturity to them from from better, better vintages and and offering, you know, not not like a trophy list, so to speak, but uh, a reserve selection of bottles of wine that would be appreciated by someone who's an avid wine drinker and or collector in terms of natural, biodynamic, and sustainable efforts, that's a focus of ours always, but it's not an end-all, be-all, if you will. So we have natural wine, we have biodynamically produced wine, we have sustainably produced wine, we have organically produced wine, but it's not something that we incorporate into our list. Uh, that's more of the human element. That's something that, you know, the sommelier in the dining room would convey that information to the person who's interested in knowing about it.
0: But How do you guys develop pairings? Uh, it's pretty dynamic.
2: I try to, as I was speaking to you earlier about managerial philosophy, I try to be as like, I try to get everyone as involved as I possibly can. So, you know, I might have an idea, but maybe I'll wait to share my idea until, you know, one or two or three others have had the chance to try the flavors of the dish that we might be trying to pair with and and see what they have to say and then say, you know, well, that's a good idea, but I this is what I was thinking. That's when we have the luxury of a lot of time and we can have that roundabout discussion and you know, share ideas and say, I think this, but I think this more often than not, it's more of a, all right, well, here's what we're going to do. This is what we're doing tonight. I know this will work, you know, moving forward. If someone wants to make a suggestion or if we want to, you know, let's set up some meetings for next week, we'll bring some people in and see what else we can work with. We do that as well, but it's pretty organic and it's fast, but yet, I mean, you know, and, and most people in the business do as well. It's, you have that, it's, it's fifty percent technical precision and fifty percent gut feeling and, and emotion. You know, I, I know these flavors. Well, I there's know there's
0: probably at least ten percent presentation in there
2: too. Well, there's a little bit of that as well, for sure. And 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 then you know, the taking into consideration the other the other wines that we're pairing, what fits in the progression. Where do we? You know, Chef Atkins is very gracious in the fact that he actually allows us uh, as a beverage team to choose the ordering of the courses on the menu. To make it more conducive to our wine progression or beverage progression, which also is quite quite nice and quite helpful.
0: And what about Nick Kokonis? What's he like to work with?
2: Nick is a, a, a very interesting character. He's very dynamic, as even keeled as you may think I am. He's his level of excitement is usually high, um, so someone like myself oftentimes chooses to listen rather than speak in 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 his presence. But he's very insightful. Uh, intelligent, always willing to provide assistance when need be, definitely has his areas of focus and other areas where he's very confident to let the team that he's put in place take care of the necessary items, like service, for example. He'll offer tips, pointers, feedback. I heard this. I saw this. Didn't really think that was right. What do you think about it? But really in kind of a hands-off way. But what Um, are
0: those focuses?
2: I mean, he definitely is involved with a lot of the technical aspects of the restaurant. So the website, uh, obviously the ticketing site is all his his creation.
0: Where do you think he got that idea?
2: I think he got that idea from watching people cancel their reservations all the time. Mm-hmm. And just being like, what? Another six-stop canceled? Because if you think about it, a restaurant like Alinea, 20 tables, you find out at 6.30 that seven o'clock table of six that you had planned on serving isn't coming. I mean, how does that impact profitability for that night? Well, it pretty much eradicates it, right? Six guests out of 80. Not just the lost revenue, but whatever produce that you bought that you're throwing. Wasted product, you know, staff hours, staffing, all of those things go into it. So that's definitely where I think that idea came from. I can't, you know, again, I don't want to speak for, for Mr. Guconis. He, I'm sure there's some other experiences that he had that led him down that path, but that's, probably one of the main things and then uh
0: but it seems like a unique answer to that Do you yeah. think he had you know things in his own history in terms of to made him feel comfortable with computers and-
2: i think i think it's a good example of how i find him to be as a a colleague and a professional in the work environment thinking outside of the box considering all possible outcomes all possible solutions and literally just distilling it down to the best possible scenario and then trying it tweaking it and moving forward and or reverting if it's not successful
0: what about the open you there before next and aviary and you saw those open what was that like
2: that was it was kind of cool because it was it was you know obviously i gave chef trotter a pretty significant notice much more than chef akitz was hoping for uh ended up working out for about three additional months so i came on literally right before they were really gearing up to open those properties so it was interesting to watch because it really gave me a a fast track as to the insight of what the culture was like, what, what Nick and what Chef Atkins were trying to create in terms of a culinary approach, what, what they wanted their, their chefs to be like, what they wanted the the leaders in the the service team to be like. What is that? Progressive, free thinking, uh, self-reliant, but yet reverent and respectful of past accomplishments without relying on them too heavily if that's fair, definitely, definitely the kind of people that it's like, it's go, 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 keep going. Don't stop. Even if, just don't stop. Even if it's not right, let's, let's try it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll go back and and try it again in a different way. But that was a a really insightful period for me because, you know, obviously you bring on that many people all at once in terms of staffing, you have to do some pretty regiment and instruction and training. And I, I was a part of that. From a beverage standpoint, I got to do some of the wine trainings and and, and assist with some of the opening uh, beverage list champagne for aviary and things like that when they were first getting going. So that was cool.
0: Why do you think Molecular has worked for Chef Hackett's as a business model when it's been more difficult for others?
2: I think it's, it relates to what I had just mentioned about their their approach to that, which is never allow yourself to get tired. Obviously, there's some techniques that you see coming in and coming out and... They may use it and they may not, and bring it back. But the progression is, in my opinion, never ending. It's always moving forward, always coming up with a new idea, a new a new way to present something. I mean, even in terms of the service pieces that we have at the restaurant, the the company that Chef and uh, Mr. Kastner have together to develop new and creative service pieces. We just added one to the to the progression of the menu a couple of weeks back, and it's you know just things like that, constant reinvention. Be it here, be it there. Be it with food, be it with service, be it with ambiance, just always pushing to change and reinvent and, and recreate, uh, I think is what's given the restaurant the amount of longevity
0: that it's experienced. Because people feel the need to come back and see yeah. what's new.
2: Because they know it's going to be different. They're not gonna, they are going to—they know they're going to see something that they didn't see there before and more than most likely something that they
0: won't see anywhere else. But is in a way, is that a logical progression of what Trotter was doing when he was changing them? You know, never the same dish twice. Idea, absolutely. Yeah. On. I mean, is it now a 3D version of that, where it's like not just the same menu prep is different, but also we're going to serve it to you on a different way every time.
2: I think again, there are lines of similarity there. I think the the idea of always pushing forward is is unilateral. It's definitely translated in both of those environments for sure, just in a different sense. Two different people. You know it's it's almost that it's almost that. Ex- Simple to explain. Two different personalities trying to do the very best thing they possibly could
0: in their own vision. But do you think that there's, you know, characteristics that the chef culture in Chicago has because of Trotter's influence here? I do, definitely. What would you identify as those?
2: I mean, attention to detail, to be really straightforward and simple. Just, are you paying attention to everything? Really? Sure. And passion? Um, I thought
0: I was, but then when you asked me the third time, I got a little queasy. exactly. That's
2: the whole, that's the, you know, and then you can you know, are you going to tell me that you are? Because what am I going to say? Am I going to point out something that you're not paying attention to? You don't know, so just that kind of attitude. Of it like, is a little
0: warm in here. I'll be honest. I'll give you that.
2: It's it's a little hot, but that's <laughs> fine. I'm talking a lot, so. But that's that's definitely one of those things where it's just focus attention to detail. But then also, you know, I think it it spreads through that. Trotter's culture of the appreciation of great quality product, uh, the appreciation of holistically produced products, not necessarily organic or biodynamic, just like-minded individuals making artisanal products, and and not only appreciating that but but supporting that and and, and championing it to guests and diners and
0: showcasing it, I guess if you will. Did you feel that when Next and Aviary opened that they over time, had an influence back on Alinea, or are they just separate entities? I, I mean, I think there's there's no way that those influences can't be
2: seen. There's I don't think there's there would even be a, a way to prevent that from happening if that was the interest, because there are people involved in all three properties. You know, my focus is Alinea, but there are other people who are a little bit more involved in, in all three entities as a, as a whole, and then obviously Chef and Mr. Gakonis are deeply rooted in all three properties so they bring ideas from one place to another and sometimes you know does something of the spirit of a future nem- menu at next pop up on a, on a menu at Alinea because you know they're they're playing with a certain product or they're thinking about a certain style of cuisine of course absolutely and it's exciting I think I think that's it's really cool when you know some of our guests who dine with us more frequently are like oh is this Something they're thinking about, you know, for a future menu at Next, and you're like, I, I, I don't know, but certainly seems like it could be to me as well. But I think that's important, though, as well. I think it adds to what we do. That diversity now, you know, not trying to, now it's not just this one direction. It's three separate directions. They're all very uniquely different. But in any scenario where you have these three different, you know, driving forces or goals, the conglomeration of that is going to, going to heighten the, the overall, Ability to source and pull from here and there and and find new ideas.
0: In terms of so many pairings, pretty much the whole dining room doing wine pairings, does that affect how the list is written? Does it affect cost structures in terms of maximizing a bottle? Like, got 12 pours out of it, or? um. Well, it's not everyone, but it's
2: it's more than half of the guests in the restaurant on a nightly basis. Obviously, as you know, some nights wine sales are great, other nights wine sales are not great, but... I think it takes, I mean, that's, you know, one of the more technical aspects of being a sommelier on the floor of a restaurant is you have to assume that responsibility and make sure that we're communicating and do we have this open? Is it at the right temperature? Does it need to be decanted? How many bottles do we need to have open? What's the, you know, what's what's your table of six doing versus what my table of six is doing on the other side of the restaurant? Let's have a dialogue, get these things ready. So that's part of the skill of being a, a floor sommelier is, is managing that to where at the end of the night you have A, satisfied guests who feel as though their appetites for wine were satisfied and that the, the perception of value for the price that you charge them is, is there. And B, you don't have 35 bottles of wine half open sitting you know, on, the, on the credenza around the corner in the wait station.
0: So but one thing I would think would happen, if you have tickets in advance and you have wine pairings it, that are dominating the, the sales, is that the upsell factor really gets taken away? Like, there's not a lot of opportunity to upsell if people have already purchased their food and there's one price for a wine pairing.
2: Um, well, to that regard, we don't pre sell wine, it's just a ticket price that they're paying for beforehand.
0: Right, but is there multiple prices for a wine pairing, or is it there the are same? oftentimes
2: oh, okay. oftentimes we will offer two different pairings. I see. I see. Uh, the pricings range from 125 to 150, and then
0: so it's a kind of flex thing depending on what you open.
2: Depending on what I mean, we price the pairing based on the cost of the wines that are on it, so that the value is always there for the guests. That there's no there's no question that. You know, if if the chef decides to take a course off the menu and that eliminates a wine, then well, now the wine pairing is less expensive. We really like the the personal nature of the interaction with the sommelier in the dining room between, uh, you know, our our more standard offering. We have a reserve collection of wines, uh, not always, but most of the time. And then obviously bring the wineless over to the table if, if the guests would like. So we think that it's really important to have that personal injection right at the beginning of the evening to just speak. Truly about the level of service that we're trying to give, but also I think you know the commitment of Chef Ackett and Mr. Kukonis to have the sommelier staff that we have in the restaurant, which we're fortunate to have really talented group of people.
0: And how big is that?
2: Um, at the moment,
0: five. That seems like a lot for
2: five sommeliers. And the amount of table we also things. have you know, if we take the beverage team as a whole, uh, a six person who handles uh, our barista duties and non alcoholic beverages.
0: Because you're closed two nights a week. Mm-hmm. It's a small restaurant. so
2: It's a small restaurant, so it's basically three dining rooms. So on every given night, and pretty much everyone's there every night, You know, there'll be a, a sommelier assigned to each of the, each of the three rooms specifically. Um, and then usually two of us, including myself. So I'm one of those two in a more of a floating role, helping out where need be. And there's a particular table that needs extra attention or bottles that need to be retrieved or, you know, it gets busy. There's a lot of stuff
0: to do. Are there things that are more difficult that you wouldn't have expected in that kind of environment? With wine?
2: With wine, yes. There are. It's a very, very fast paced environment. And there's a lot of, you know, the, the way that the courses arrive and the way that the courses leave the kitchen. There are times where a course is on the table for less than a minute. And when you when you add wine service into that, it it definitely can present some challenges. So we have to be really smart as to how we how we have that conversation with guests who want to order wines by the bottle and how we kind of lead them into ordering in such a way that not only are they making choices that are suitable for the progression of courses, but also choosing them in such a way that's conducive to us still giving them the truest possible expression of the Alinea experience.
0: So yeah. who's the Alinea customer? I mean, what's the regular type? Of there isn't a
2: regular. Dog. It's it, It's such a broad spectrum. So, you know... Like I was saying before, it may be a client that is, this is this is it. They think that this is the one time that they're going to dine in Alinea and it's our first anniversary and we've saved up and we're super excited and we just, I don't know, I can't, can you take a picture of me? I'm so excited to, you know, I'm in Chicago for 10 days. I'm from Mainz, Germany, and I'm going to go to every restaurant that I read about that was in Chicago while I'm here. And then I'm going to go to... San Fran or New York and, and do the same thing there. So again, really like reputation
0: street. based. Yes, like it's definitely. Not, they are not just walking by like, yeah, hey, let's get dinner.
2: No, it's for the most part, everyone's intent is this is a special occasion and or an opportunistic occasion, i.e. we're in Chicago. Let's go to Alinea. I mean, most of our clients are on most days from not only out of town, out of Chicago, but from abroad as well. I mean, we get, I mean, we're fortunate. We're lucky that people, we have people come in all the time. They're like, we flew in from Sydney, Australia, to dine here. It took us 24 hours.
0: So when people say, you know, hey, Chicago, traditionally it's a steakhouse town. There's a lot of more comfortable fine dining in the city now. But then there's also real successful molecular gastronomy. In a way, is that supported by a global audience more than the Chicago audience, that last part? I think that
2: the global audience is definitely what brings some of that acclaim to that particular style of cuisine because, you know, that's how you see it represented in the media and publications, you know, San Pellegrino, Top 50, and Traveler Elite, what have you. You know, these these are global publications. But I also would venture the fact that there's a very strong dining community in Chicago that in their own way is supportive of, progressive, young, inventive chefs. And, and there's definitely a community in Chicago where certainly there's a steakhouse and certainly you can go there and enjoy a great meal. But there are people interested in maybe having that experience, but then also having the ability to have a different experience that takes them in, in a different
0: direction. In an environment, what's about go and about evolution and change? Where do you think that's going to take the wine program in a couple of years? If I were to have this conversation with you again in a couple of years and I said, what's changed since the last time I saw you, what do you think your answer will be? I can answer that in in a couple of ways. Definitively,
2: there are plans in the works to expand the wine storage that we have in the restaurant, um, which I think is going to be great, which will allow us to offer a little bit more of a breadth in terms of the, the, the list. So that's one definite thing that I would point out and will hopefully come true. We look forward to it. Another thing that we always try to take into consideration is how we can increase our ability to give great wine service. Alinea has never gotten any kind of acclaim for, for the wine service, and that's something that we would love to change. I'd love to see that come to the forefront. Obviously, the cuisine is first and foremost of what we offer, but I think wine service brings something additional to the overall
0: guest experience. Do you feel like the James Beard Awards coming to Chicago may give more of an opportunity for you to showcase the wine program. And I don't think you guys have ever been nominated for No, we a never JBF have. JBF for wine service. I would but love yeah, to be nominated. You have all these sommeliers. You know. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think as with anything, I think anytime we get the opportunity to have an event like that in Chicago, it just raises the bar for everybody. Everyone benefits, every restaurant, every chef, every service professional, every sommelier in the city. Here's a chance to raise your game, showcase what you can do. You got, a global and a national audience here in the city for something that's very very well respected you know they're going to go out and dine so it's your chance to shine right
0: conrad reddick he's had a lot of chances to shine and he's done so at a career that has included stints at trotters and alinea he's the beverage director and also the service director at alinea today thank you very much for being here thank you very much it's been an honor conrad reddick of alinea all drink to that is hosted and produced by myself levy dalton